Uh, Let's jump into today. We are in a series where we are working through the big story, the story of humanity in Scripture. We've gone through the beginning, the origin story of humanity. Where did we come from? We know as Christians we are not lost. We know our origin. And as Christians we also know our destination. Uh, We know our origin. We know our destination. We know what went wrong. We talked about that in detail. What is the fall? Literally the plucking of the apple. uh, The decision that Adam and Eve made that said, I will be the decider of right and wrong. I'll create my own society defining through my own desires what right and wrong is. We talked about how that basically destroyed the world with the, man, insertion of sin and death into it. And then the chosen ones, how God called out a group of people, and we're in the kingdom of Israel. We've been walking through that. Today we're going to be talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. Actually, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. What a great name, Zerubbabel. Uh, so we need, somebody needs to name their kid that. That would be awesome. I bet you there is some good homeschool Christian family probably has a kid named Zerubbabel somewhere. Um, that would be awesome. The homeschool part, there's just extra. Uh, so I love it. I'm actually really excited to get into this. Before we do, though, I want to kind of paint a big picture of what's taking place in the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah saga, because it is one saga, one story that really lays out clearly the condition of the human heart. Years ago, uh, when I was earlier in ministry, there was one of our young adult guys who uh, fell in love with a young lady, and I don't know if you've ever had a friend of yours, or maybe you're a parent with like a child, and they bring home somebody that they're dating, somebody that they're interested in, and it doesn't take long, and through your eyes, you're going, oh no, this is, this is, this is not good. And so I don't know if you've had that happen before, maybe with a friend, a friend brings somebody over, and you're going, oh no, this isn't good, or a child brings somebody home, you're going, oh no, this isn't good. I had that feeling. This person brought this individual and was like, hey, um, we're dating, we're kind of getting serious. I'm thinking, oh no, this isn't, this isn't good. He definitely was more driven by hot than holy. He was definitely way more driven by hot than holy. And, uh, you know, but it's like, how much say do you really have as a young adult pastor with these people? And so you encourage them to think, but it's like if you push too hard, you're afraid you're going to push them away. Do you know what I mean? So it's like if I push too hard and I'm going, hey, I don't think this is a person that you should be dating. I don't think it's wise. And you can see the tension growing between you and like a child or you and a friend. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to quit pushing so hard because I don't want to push my own kid away or I don't want to push a good friend away. But you kind of know in your gut this is a bad decision. It was that kind of moment. So they ended up getting married, and uh, it didn't take long in the marriage, and he discovered this young lady was way more interested in staying interesting to men than actually building a home with him. Does that make sense? She was way more interested in staying interesting to men than building a home with him. And, of course, he's, like, surprised by this, and everybody around him is like, are you an idiot? Right? Like, we all saw this. And he started working fervently to try to save this marriage. And, and I literally mean fervently. Anything that he could do. Uh, I remember he would take on more work. Thinking he, he could actually maintain healthy. Him being healthy, he couldn't keep it. But taking on more work to make more money. To buy more extravagant vacations. To buy a bigger house. To buy her more clothes. I mean, he was doing everything he could to try to keep 
her heart locked on to him. Eventually, she was unfaithful again. And he literally sat across the table from me at a restaurant, just, I mean, emotional, angry and emotional in tears. And he's like, man, what else can I do? I mean, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I was trying to think maybe if I, if I move some money around here, if I get another credit card, maybe we go on, like, this vacation. And, or maybe this, like, couple's retreat down in, like, you know, wherever, super expensive, you name it. Like, maybe that would help her lock on. He was doing anything that he could to try to keep her heart. And then he sat down with her, of course, after she had been unfaithful, and he confronts her about it, and she feels bad-ish, you know. She feels bad that she got caught. And she very reluctantly decides to accept accountability in the marriage. So they do like the, the apps where you can like follow each other and wherever you go. She's reluctant in doing this but decides to do it. So they now have this accountability in their marriage. They're kind of halfway going to counseling because she really doesn't want to. And most of the time when they do go to counseling, the counseling just ends up about her working through her issues, not actually about healing the marriage. And though that does overlap some, I get that it's difficult and complex at times. And, and he's still trying to spend these very... Expensive, a lot of money on these very expensive vacations. And I mean, he's doing everything that he can to keep her heart. And then one day he comes home and she's gone. It's a true story. And here's what we discovered, right? A heart that wants to be faithful. A heart that wants to be faithful needs no chains, no walls, and no extravagance. A heart, like a heart that really does want to be faithful, needs no chains, no walls, and no extravagance. The other thing we discovered is this. A heart that wants to leave won't stay, no matter how chained down, walled in, and extravagantly coerced the person is. Like this young adult guy, as much accountability as the marriage could handle, as much money to coerce her as he could possibly spend, as much counseling, the emotion. I mean, like he invested everything, but the reality is a heart that wants to leave won't stay no matter how chained down, walled in, and extravagantly coerced, right? Maybe a way to say it would be this, because if you don't understand this, you're going to miss the whole Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah saga. You're going to miss the whole point of it. Uh, So here would be maybe a way to say it. Holiness isn't built by making more rules. It's only built by making a That's it. That's the only way that actually gets there. Holiness isn't built by making more rules. It's only built by making a heart right. It is. You can't make enough rules and create big enough chains to force somebody to fall in love or stay in love with you. You can't. But a heart that really is in love and really does want to be faithful needs no chains. No expensive coercing. They're faithful. The heart, the heart, the heart. Maybe for you sitting here today, it's not a marriage where you've seen this played out. Maybe for you it's a friend. Like you literally have had a friend of yours. I have. I've had this. A friend of yours, somebody that you really, really wanted to be friends with, 
and you tried everything, like you're trying to do the things that they like to do. You're trying to speak in ways that help understand them. You're doing everything you can to keep a friendship, but no matter how hard you try, you can tell their heart isn't in it. And in the end, the friendship breaks apart, not because you wanted it, but because they refused it. No matter how hard you tried, it just, you couldn't make it work. Maybe it's not a friendship for you. Maybe for you it's a child. Maybe you have an adult child, and they're a little bit wayward by nature. And you're doing everything you can to keep that relationship okay. Um, you know, it's like you want to talk with your adult child, but it's like I don't want to share too much, and i got to really guard my words, and I can't really say what I think because I don't want to push him away. And it's like you're just constantly walking on eggshells because you know that their heart really isn't locked in here, that they're kind of wandering and want out. And so you live so careful. Maybe you know what it's like through that lens. Maybe you're sitting here today and you realize you're the wandering heart. Like there's a little bit of this that's in, it's in you. It's in you. And you find yourself going places and looking at things and engaging in stuff that you know, man, why, why, why? Why am I the one that keeps breaking these friendships, hurting our marriage and filling the gap? This takes us directly to Nehemiah. By the time Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, that saga hits, the people of God have just had many, many moments where their wandering hearts destroyed their relationship with God and each other over and over and over again. In fact, i got a timeline I can put up here. So this is awesome. I think Alyssa made it. Thank you, Alyssa, or whoever did. Kelly, Alyssa, somebody. Kelly, thank you, Kelly, for making this for me. Uh, but here's what we got. The kingdom of Israel, this is like super summed up. This is where we are so far in our story, right? Of the kings. This doesn't have the origin. The, the, so our origin that we've talked through is not on here. But starting with the Exodus moving forward. So you have the Exodus, right? So God calls his people out of Egypt. Remember we taught through all that a couple months ago. Uh, you have the nation of Israel established after the wandering in the desert. We taught through that a few months ago. You have the rise of Saul, David, Solomon. We talked about kings. If you remember that cycle, how kings fall, the rise and fall of kings. We went through all of that. Uh, a couple months back. And then coming out of the rise and fall of the kings, you have the division of the Israel. So the people of God divided into two primary groups because of fallen hearts that want wrong things. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And what happens to Israel is Israel literally just kind of like dwindles off into nothing. The northern kingdom. Literally, Assyria just gobbles them up is what happens. In fact, there's at one point, if you read through uh, the story of the kings, uh, you'll remember uh, Israel, so the northern kingdom at one point just decides to name secular gods their god. They literally call them the same thing. There's a really interesting couple of verses in there where it says that they made two golden calves, put one in Samaria, another on the other side, of the northern kingdom. And the king of the northern kingdom just goes, call them all Yahweh. So it's like all roads lead to heaven. It's literally what's being stated. And when all roads lead to heaven, no one feels like they need to search out heaven because it's going to get you there anyways. And Israel literally just like, it's gone. When everything is truth, nothing is truth. 
And so they dwindle off and ultimately become kind of nothing. They just go away. I mean, and there's a lot of stories that play into that. I mean, I love, I mean, I love a lot of those. I won't go into them now. But, uh, and then Judah. So hail, hail, lion of Judah. That's the one. So a lot of the stories that you've heard and you've studied through your time in the church literally come almost exclusively, not entirely, but a lot of them through the southern part in the split the line of Judah. Well, what happens to Judah is Judah is not perfect either, though literally when it gives the list of kings, the northern kingdom had no good kings listed, and the southern kingdom I think had three, if I remember right, from my history. So only three out of all the kings, they only had three that were eh, okay. So even in their dark days, they get gobbled up by the Babylonian empire. So remember we studied this uh, we had a number of guest speakers even through that. It was kind of good a few months ago where you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. So Babylon comes in and scoops out the most powerful, young, healthy of the people of the southern tribe and take them away to Babylon. And in Babylon, they really do get kind of brought into that culture, though they're trying to be faithful. Remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? And then from the Babylonian Empire, well, eventually the Babylonian Empire gets gobbled up by the Persian Empire. And then during the Persian Empire, there's this crazy powerful set of stories that basically put on the heart of the Persian king to send people back to rebuild the temple. And so it's a really neat story. There's a lot of detail in it. If you're reading through the Bible with us, you would have read it. Uh, but it's the story of how God ultimately sends Zerubbabel back to rebuild the temple. The first temple is rebuilt. And then with the rebuilding of the temple, he ends up, Ezra comes back and then Nehemiah. So Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah is kind of one story. That's where we're at in this timeline. It's important to note that the Ezra-Nehemiah book is actually one scroll historically. So it's one narrative, not two, but it's divided out into two the way we have the modern Bible canonized. Uh, it's also important to know that it's not about two people. Again, it's about three. Zerubbabel, the guy who leads the group back. It's about Ezra, the one who teaches the Torah. And it's about Nehemiah, the builder of the wall. And in the whole Zerubbabel-Ezra-Nehemiah saga, there's a really important assumption that's being made by the humans, right? So as they do this, so Zerubbabel, i got to say humans on purpose because God's mission is a little different and they miss parts of it. But this is the assumption that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah have. There is one prime hope and assumption in the Zerubbabel. I'm going to mess that up all morning long, that name, I tell you. There's one prime assumption in the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah saga, and it's this. Okay, now, okay, hang on. Everybody, before you read it, look at me really fast. Everybody here. Hey, this is the same assumption that we all have today with our nation. If we build our kingdom with the laws of God made clear enough, Ezra, with the walls built high enough, Nehemiah, and a strong leader to lead the way, Zerubbabel, one really prominent, strong leader to charge in and take over, right? If we build our kingdom with the laws of God made clear enough, the walls built high enough, the people held accountable, and even cut out, this is literally in the text, and even cut out all races that aren't pure Hebrew, what will happen? This is the assumption. We will bring back our best God-honoring days. That's the way we do it. The way we bring back our God-honoring days is we build our walls as high as we possibly can. We get a really strong leader to crush the enemy as he marches through, right? And we make the laws of God, the laws of the land, and we hold people super accountable to them. 
That's the way we do it. That's always been the hope of humanity, by the way. This isn't new to them. It's not new to us today. It's been true all through human history. Good people who really want God back really think the way to do it is to control everyone. That's what they really think. If I can control everyone, we can make this place a God-honoring place again. That's what they all think. All the way through history, that's always what we think. But what we discover, just like the wandering heart of the young lady who married that guy, what we discover is this. The complex rules, the high walls, the relational boundaries, right? So like big strong laws, they don't work. The people kept violating the law of God, Nehemiah 13, with increasing strength. The final draconian ending, draconian, so like ultra strong, lots of law, total control. The final draconian ending shows that we are prone to want the... Eh. See, the problem is not that they're messed up. The problem is the human heart is messed up. That's the actual problem. That's the actual problem. And, and, and this is really difficult. Like, when you read through this, I mean, we read through these, and when you study it in the kids' area, when we're studying in the kids' area, we're going to teach it softer, don't worry. Um, but when you read this as an adult, you realize the very end of the Ezra Nehemiah, the Zerubbabel Ezra Nehemiah saga, the very end of it is actually extremely sad. They do it. They literally cut out everybody that doesn't rep the purest version of them. They build the walls as high and strong as possible, and they make the laws of God so prominent with very strict punishment if they break them. They do it. They do it. And let me read you the end of the story. So Nehemiah 13, if you ever get a chance, you ought to read the whole Ezra Nehemiah. Read the whole thing. Read the whole thing, not just little tiny passages. Read the whole story. So here it is. This is the grand sum of the Ezra Nehemiah saga. Are you ready? So Zerubbabel, Ezra Nehemiah saga. So in those days, I, and the I is Nehemiah, I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod. This is important. I'll talk about it in a minute. Those phrases in Hebrew actually mean something significant who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. That phrase is really important in Hebrew. I'll talk about it in a second. And they could not speak the language of Judah. That phrase is equally important. But only the language of each people. I confronted them. Now, this is the end of the story. So they had, they had literally built their utopia. They built their utopia. And here's how the story ends. I confronted them and cursed them, this is Nehemiah, and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, what is happening here? I mean, it's like this whole massive story Zerubbabel, Ezra, I mean, and there's some like high moments and low moments and they're trying to create the, rebuild the kingdom of God and they want to do it as pure as possible with the laws of God as clear as possible and the punishments as strong as possible to be able to keep the purity of God as, as, as made known and possible to them and to the external world and what happens is, well, 
The language of Ashdod, that phrase in Hebrew literally means, so the language of Ashdod means this represents the adoption of the lifestyle from the region of Philistia. Now, for those that are got a little Bible history in you, this is the Philistines. Remember King David? Or you remember David before he was king? You know, remember David and he's fighting Goliath and Goliath was a Philistine. Ashdod is the language of the region of Philistia. So what this text means in Hebrew is the people of God who lived in these big walls with all these strict laws, with all this draconian control, what ends up happening is their wandering hearts look over at the area of Philistia, right? The language of Ashdod, the way of those people. And they go, that looks fun. And they take in just a little bit of them and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So much so that when their kids are born, they don't even speak the language. And don't speak the language means they don't know the ways of God. They've now become of the region of Ashdod. Now, if you remember from history too, we went over this in detail months ago, that area of history, child sacrifice, I mean, sexual exploitation and all kinds of, I mean, this is a terrible place. So no wonder Nehemiah walks through and he's like, I've done everything. Literally, if you read Nehemiah 13, read through the whole last part, not just 13, but like 10, 11, 12, 13, read the last whole section of that. If you read through it, Nehemiah's like, I've done everything, God. Look, I I built these huge walls. We taught the word, your words of the Torah as clear as possible. We have punishment for people that break it. We've tried to cut out all people that don't represent you. Like, we've done everything we're supposed to do. And these people are so perverse, they don't even speak the language of God anymore. And Nehemiah loses it. He's like tearing his clothes and pulling out people's hair. And I mean, he loses it. Another important part of this is the kingdom of Israel was called to be like the grand narrative. The kingdom of Israel was called to be the brighter, the bringer of light into the darkness. Instead, the darkness of the outside nations was continuing, continually putting out the light in the kingdom of Israel, Isaiah 42, 6. So here's what we learn in all of this. The Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah saga, the main idea from this, and, and again, doing this in like a children's church would be interesting, but the main idea is this. If we're going to become a holy people, We need, there's no other way. If we're going to become a holy people, we need a new heart. There is no other way. You can't build chains big enough. You can't build walls high enough. You can't punish people severe enough to actually make their hearts want right things. Without an actual change of heart, the darkness always gets in because it was already there. So let's look at the human heart from Scripture. I mean, New Testament. Let's jump all the way to the New Testament now. The human heart. Let's talk about the human heart. Scripture. What does Scripture say about the human heart? 
Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's what it says about the human heart. I know, um, I'm going to invite Josh up, we'll be done in a few minutes here, but like, I know this is like first service. This is the early service of all of our services on Sunday morning, right? So uh, the people in this room, we're the ones that probably have like grown up in the church, have been a part of the church a long time. Um, we've been following the Lord a long time. You, you want to know a crazy secret? You, you also have hearts that are prone to wander. And God's got to keep doing surgery on your hearts too. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even early service Sunday morning people. Us too, me too, us too. Ezekiel 36, 26, let's go back to the Old Testament. It says, how how does real salvation happen? How does real transformation actually happen? How does it actually happen? Not by bigger chains. Not by stricter laws. How does actual change happen? Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26. So th- this is where Christ comes in, because like the whole saga, even from, you, oh man, preaching sometimes really stinks, because there's so much more I want to say, and one of two things. One, I think that most people aren't interested in all of the extra history stuff that I love, and two, it would make the sermon way too long. But let me just say it like this. The Zerubbabel-Ezra-Nehemiah saga that's so important in the arc of Scripture is the resounding kind of central mantra of the old covenant that leads to the necessity of the Messiah. So it's like the big resounding voice of the Old Testament says, we can't make heaven. We need heaven to come to us. We can't make a holy people. We need to have something in us transformed so we can actually become one. That's like the tone of the ark of the Old Testament. And the very center, like if you hit a, like a gong or something, the very center of that strike is the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, boom. We can't build it. We have to be rebuilt. This is where Christ comes in. Christ. The way of heart change is the way of Jesus. That's what that is. Literally, the way of heart changes the way of Jesus. To lean into the ways of Christ, oh man, I'm not saying that you acknowledge Jesus lived. 
That's not salvation. You're not saved by going, yeah, Jesus walked on this planet. I mean, even the demons did that, right? And tremble, literally in the text. The way of salvation is submission. You literally, the way of the master, it's literally, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to love what he loves. I'm going to prioritize what he prioritizes. I'm going to do what he does. I'm going to engage the way he would engage. I'm literally going to walk the road of Jesus. That's the way of heart change. And it begins with that humble moment. It's a moment and a road. That moment where you go, Christ, I acknowledge I am a sinner. I don't make the way to salvation. You remake me so that I can walk the way of salvation. And then it's a road, a journey of following Jesus. The way of heart change is the way of Jesus. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, literally walking the ways of Jesus, so you've acknowledged, confessed, I am a sinner, I can't do it. I am not what is holy. I am not what the world needs most. I am not the answer to the brokenness. Like, I am broken too. The brokenness is in this vessel. I need Christ to save me. That humility is the beginning block. And then you walk the way of Christ. He is a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, walking the way of Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Literally, you're leaving the dying way. And behold, the new has come. You're now walking the way of life. You don't do this to earn salvation. You can't earn salvation. You're not good. But in humility, you can follow the one who can save you. Biblical love is less about an ideal feeling and more about your commitment to future actions. You guys, this is why our biggest testimony to the world Our biggest testimony to the world is our gratitude that Christ saved us. Not your perfect structures, not your perfect laws. It's literally gratitude that Christ saved us and humbly following Him. That's your greatest testimony. I mean, when your kids watch you, are they watching you love law? Or are they watching you grateful that love came to you? So there I am. I'm sitting across the table from this young man who followed hot over holy I'm going to do that with my kids. That's going to become a new axiom in our home. Don't marry or marry holy over hot. That's it. That's going to go on my chalkboard at home. Marry holy over hot. That's going to be a new one. There you go. We'll pray for both. That's what you want to do. You want to pray for both. Let's be honest. You want to pray for both. We want both of those, holy and hot. Let's go. Let's, Let's do both, holy and hot. But there I am. I'm sitting across the table from this young man and he is in tears desperately trying to figure out how to keep the love of his 
wife. Do I do bigger vacations? Do I get a nicer house? What if, what, I mean, like maybe a, a better car? You know, and we're going to put all this accountability into our marriage. Man, we're going to have like apps that track everything we do. We're going to like, I mean, doing everything he can to keep the love of his wife. But she loves Ashdod. You guys, you can't build big enough walls. You can't make strong enough chains or strict enough laws to make the human heart good. Let me say it again. You can't build big enough walls. You can't make strong enough chains. You can't make strict enough laws to make the human heart good. To really change the world, you need to allow God to work in here. All of the stories over thousands of years in the whole arc of the Old Testament point to this one truth. The human heart is broken and we need a new heart. Let me just ask a couple questions. I need to be, I need to be done. I got to keep teaching. If you would, grab the Next Steps card and pull it out. I do want you to really reflect or at least pretend like you're doing it. It makes me feel like you're listening. Just out of kindness for your pastor, pull out the Next Steps card and, 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 and pretend like you're going to really think about this. Just make me feel good. It's a compassion move. Let me just ask a couple questions and then I'll, I'll be done here today. Are there any areas, and I'm just going to pray Holy Spirit, let these questions prod them to reflect in any way you need. Are there any areas of your life where you are letting the darkness in? And, and, I mean, you know it. Maybe it's through a TV show. Maybe it's through an activity that you're doing. Like, I mean, the truth is, you're trying to live in the New Jerusalem, but you're constantly peering over the wall at Ashdod. And, and, and you know, you know it, you know it, you know you are. Don't justify it away, you know you are. And maybe peering over the wall for you is something you're watching on Netflix or looking on at the computer or a substance you're taking in. I have no idea, right? Like, but what are you, are you peering over the wall somehow? Like you are the people, right? And the evidence is there. Are there any areas of your life where you are letting the darkness, letting in the darkness? Right? That's just one question just to think about. The next one will be this. Are there any misaligned priorities that are allowing the light to grow dim? I mean, it's like, you acknowledge Jesus is real, but you're not going to prioritize your life like he's actually the only rescue for you. What if you really believed 
that the only way you don't burn in hell is through the saving work of Jesus Christ. What if you actually believed that? Would you reprioritize your life? I don't know. Just... And then here's another one. I really want you to do this. In fact, this morning I thought about only asking this question. Maybe I will by the time I get through all the services today. But have you ever asked God? In fact, I've even got this for the, for the screen. Have you asked God openly to change your heart? Have you ever had a moment? I mean, like, maybe even today through one of our prayer people or with the pastor, have you ever had a moment or like, well, you're doing communion? Like, take communion and stop at the altar. Don't just go back to your seat. Maybe stop at the altar and just be like, God, give me a new heart. Have you ever asked God openly to change your heart? Have you made real world decisions that support that request? You know, I just let the Lord lead you. Listen, I love you all. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Only a heart change will work. Take some time and reflect. Man, I love you all. I love that I get to be your pastor. I love that you put up with me. I really do. Go ahead and reflect. What's the Lord speaking in your heart? Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.